MailChimp presents. As a marketer, you're speaking to a vast audience. Some people need to be converted into customers, some need to be reunited with their carts, and others have just made a purchase. But when you fail to segment your audience and personalize your messaging, you can get what's called a customer. One big cluster of customers who may seem alike, but actually all have different behaviors. So how do you turn those customers back into customers? With Intuit MailChimp, you can use personalization tools that segment customers into groups, break them up into like-minded target audiences, and send them personalized marketing. Intuit MailChimp, the number one email marketing and automations brand. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide numbers of customers in 2021 and 2022. Availability of features and functionality vary by plan, which are subject to change. This is Going Through It, a show about women who found themselves in situations where they said, so this is what we not gonna do. And they made a decision to make a change and turn something around. I am your host, Tracy Clayton. So mine is crazy as a rat in a coffee can. Ah. Have you heard that before? I have not. Okay. So that is Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. I'm sitting with her in her office on Capitol Hill, and we are trading idioms. Just two black girls talking the same way the mamas would talk. Ah, um, you're you're like jittery, Mm -hmm. excited about something? Mm -hmm. Is that what it means? Okay. Okay, Ilhan, I see you. I thought I was going to pull out some some trickery, but she got it. Her turn. Danier, which in English is uh, a monkey is never able to notice its own like behind, but ah. always notices the behinds of other monkeys. Ah, yes, monkey butts. Exactly how I wanted to get into this conversation with the congresswoman. <laughs> Oh, I know what that um, means. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got one, but they don't think there's smells bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's us. That's, okay. Is, is it, am I in the ballpark? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's basically like th- the fact that, right, we we are easy to recognize the flaws of others mm-hmm. um, and are never willing to recognize our own flaws, mm-hmm. which is a human flaw. Ilhan Omar is the first Somali-American in Congress. She is the first Black Muslim woman in Congress. She's a lot of firsts, and we're going to get there. Now, mind you, this conversation happened before George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were killed. It happened before Ilhan unfortunately lost her dad to COVID-19. A lot of stuff can happen in a couple of months. But when I sat down with Ilhan, we talked about a very specific moment. And this moment was when she realized that the America that she dreamed of and the one that she got were very different. So when you're going through the process of immigrating to the United States, it's a very long process. There's a lot involved. There's tests, lots of dates to remember, lots of facts to memorize. And then they showed her a tape of what looked to be an American family having Thanksgiving dinner. You know, a a table full of food with a beautiful roasted chicken, or turkey, you know, happy family around kids who are uh, beautifully dressed, getting on a brand new school bus, beautiful homes, white picket fences, the American dream. But when Ilhan and her family got to America, 
They ain't seen no roasted turkeys. We landed in New York City. And one of the first things I saw as our car was driving from the airport to the hotel was people sleeping on the side of the streets and little trash everywhere. To have that be your first image is, is one that's jarring. And it shows a complete contrast to everything you'd believed you would witness when you first came. The fact that there were two different Americas is something that she never got over. But it's also what planted the seed in her to organize, to get involved in politics, and do what she could to bridge those two different Americas together. And that, friends and family, is what Ilhan and I talked about in that office on Capitol Hill. This is going through it. I can't imagine um, how confusing it must have been to have gotten here and been like, this is, they sent me to the diff- like a different planet. You yeah, know? I mean, I, I literally said that to my father. I mm. said, this does not look like uh-huh. the American you had promised. We got lost somewhere, yeah. you know, we and, took a wrong turn. And he said, hush child, we will get, <laughs> we will get to our America. Um, um, and I'm still working on getting to, to that America that was on that video, so <laughs> we'll see. What is your earliest memory? My earliest memory, it's, it's odd because I don't, I don't really have memories that are chronological. Hmm. Um, and I, I, I suppose it's because, right, I moved a lot and, yeah. and went through a lot of trauma. But a lot of, like, my childhood happy memories are around, like, us eating and listening to Radio Mokudisho. Mm. It's like BBC or uh, NPR here. And we would listen to it as a family around lunchtime. And at the end, right after they did like their programming, they would play songs. Mm-hmm. And uh, our family was a lover of music. And so they would make the males and females often do a lot of the duet songs. Somalis are known for a lot of their duets. Mm-hmm. And so there's always like a lot of duets uh, playing on the radio. And so my, my aunties and uncles and my brothers and um, my sisters would uh, sort of uh, do that. And so that was always fun um, to know who could uh, carry a tune, who couldn't, um, <laughs> who had the ability to like uh, sing along and, and who um, couldn't. And, and, and it, you know, and we make fun of one another. And it was, al- it was always very joyous. And then, like, the neighbors yeah. um, sometimes like would, yeah, sometimes would, would come around. <laughs> um, we also lived by the, by the market, the souk. And so there was always a lot of people just stopping by because the door was always open as yeah. we ate. Aww. Yeah, in the courtyard. What did you know about immigrating to America, which you did at the age of 12, yes? Mm -hmm. What did you Mm -hmm. understand about the move and why you had to leave? Yeah, Um, so we were living in a refugee camp. uh, And so um, what I knew was it was going to be an opportunity um, Mm -hmm. for us to have Mm -hmm. a normalized life. Um, For me in particular, it was an opportunity to go to school to get an education, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and it was going to be an opportunity for us to, to be safe and, um, 
and and to reorient our our future and have path to to prosperity. Mm. What was the camp like? You know, just like most of the of the refugee camps, I was in a camp in in Mombasa, Kenya. So the the one thing that was unique was that in in most camps that you see pictures of now, um, they're in a desert like setting, mm-hmm. um, and and ours wasn't really that way. It was a coastal. Um, Mombasa is a coastal city, um, and so there was there was some lush trees at times, and um, and there was like a like a dirty river or something like that. That was like a pond that was nearby. Um, so there was a lot of mosquitoes. People were dying of malaria mm. um, and and food related illnesses. Um, and so I I just I've memories of seeing more death in the camp than I did um, doing war oh in, my in, um, in Somalia. When did when did America start to feel like home for you and your family? Yeah, no, this this is home, um, and it it has been home for a really long time. I mean, my concept of home is is where your heart feels at peace, where your surroundings are familiar to you, um, where you are around people that that you love and feel loved by, and you know, I, I would say around end of seventh grade, eighth grade, I started to, to feel that. Mm-hmm. I could actually communicate with my classmates, with my teachers, you know, with, with my principal who so desperately was, was working to make sure that, I'd, that I was adjusting to life in America. Mm-hmm. And, and I think for, for me, you know, the, the ability to communicate was a life-altering Thing for me because I'm somebody who loves to talk. <laughs> um, I'm somebody who understands that regardless of what our differences are, right, mm-hmm. as, as long as we're able to have a conversation, right. we will connect uh, at some level. And so to not have the ability to connect with my classmates and with the people in my school um, was, yeah, it was quite, quite frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and once I was able to do that, really, I, 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 I felt at peace with myself and was able to create a home for myself here. And now you're in a field where communication is key and necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, the good old field of politics, which in my research, um, I read that your father and grandfather um, were instrumental in introducing you to politics and getting you interested there. How did they do that? Yeah. I mean, they were excited about one unique aspect of of America that was more often talked about uh, in our way here and as as we adjusted to life here. And and that was the ability to vote and the ability to participate in in this democracy. It's one that they'd worked really hard um, to have in, in their lives and one that was denied to them. Um, and so they um, wanted to make sure that they could do that as as soon as possible. Um, and and yeah. I was, you know, one one of the children um, who kind of glued um, uh, themselves to to that aspect of of their aspirations of being an American. Mm. Well, you sure did stick to it. I tell you that you are now the first Somali American to be elected into the U.S. House of Representatives and one of the first Muslim women to be elected into the House as well. I grew up uh, in a 
pretty white place. And most of the people that um, most of my friends of color also know what it's like to be the only black person in the room or the only brown person in a room. Um, It's a great honor, but also very stressful, it must be. What's the most stressful part about that for you? You know, Ayanna Presley, um, the congresswoman from Massachusetts, um, said something to me and and to Rashida and and Alex um, as, as we were having dinner. And and one of the things she said was, in quoting, I, I suppose a, a poet or you know someone fabulous as she always does, um, that the the greatest agony is being misunderstood. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, I, I am perpetually <laughs> um, taken out of context and, and misunderstood. Everybody wants to, to put their, their own um, ideas and vision for me onto me and to be something for Somalis, for the ones that are progressive and the ones that are not, for immigrants, for refugees, for the African diaspora, who now get to have, right? They're also first member of Congress because I'm also the the first person in Congress to have ever been born in Africa. To be visibly Muslim comes with a lot of ideas of who you're supposed to be and what you are and what you can do. And so all of that, I think, sets up a really atrocious environment where you're constantly trying to say like, hello, this is who I am. Can I introduce myself? But never really get the opportunity to, because regardless of how you start a sentence and how you finish, people will hear it, Mm -hmm. um, have their own interpretations for it, um, and have assumptions about how you came up with whatever sentence you just uttered, mm-hmm. put assumptions on your thought process, make decisions for you because of what you look like and where you might have been born and yeah. all of that. Because when you are dealing with someone that is a complete unicorn, right? Like yeah. there, are, there is no, uh, there's no way to say like, you know, this person served da 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 before. Yeah. Um, maybe this makes sense. Maybe this doesn't. And mm-hmm. so people are constantly trying to say, "I am this and I'm that," and and it, and I really don't have the the patience. Yeah. Um. To to try to constantly defend mm-hmm. my identity as I defend my my policy right. ideas. This actually blends perfectly into my next question, with which is basically, how are you? Like, how do you how do you deal with those frustrations? How do you deal with not having the patience for it? How do you remember who you are when people are trying to get you to be this person and that person? Like, are you taking care of yourself at the end of the day? How do you how do you take care of yourself at the end of the day? Yeah, I mean, I think there is something peaceful about existing in a space where you completely know who you are Mm. and what is driving you. Because I think if you are deprived of that, um, then all of the voices get to penetrate your psyche. Um, And because I am someone who had to deal with the challenges of coming of age in a new country, 
that sort of never really had an understanding of every identity you carry. Yeah. Um, I I had to develop a strong sense of me mm-hmm. in order to, to survive and, and, and not lose my smile. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my father was very much focused on that and developing and making me understand, right, like where my sense of pride and, mm-hmm. and identity should be rooted in. At the end of the day, their assumptions are just going to make an ass of them. And I'm pretty cool in sleeping well and looking at myself in the mirror with pride. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. What has your first year in Congress taught you about yourself? Flexibility. (laughs) You know, you cannot have control over much when you are in elected office. You don't really fully control your schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't control what time you'll go to bed. Um, oh, that sounds incredible. Right. I know. Right um, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's all, all, all of these things that, right, as you grow into adulthood that you have learned to master that kind of go out the door and the ability to not fully sit and digest your meal, mm-hmm. but to be okay with that is is a is a full <laughs> full adjustment mm. um, for me. And and the fact that I'm not driven crazy by that, I would say, is is a growth. I wish beyond wishing that we had more time. There's so much stuff that I would love to chit chat with you about, but. I understand that you are a very busy and important woman. Should you ever get another minute? You know, you just want to hang around. See what I said about control over things? Because if I had control over things, (laughs) we would continue this conversation. Well, Um, I feel like we'll have a chance to continue it one day. But I'm so, so glad. This is us being flexible now. Yes. It's great. I'm already learning. Look. Wonderful. Congresswoman, thank you you so much. It's been so nice talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great chat. Rejecting the noise and standing strong in who you know you are can be really, really hard. But Ilhan did that. So, friends and family, let us pivot to the part of the show where I break things down with my girls, the ones who really, really get me. There is nothing like kicking it with people who just get you, you know? They just get it. So, over some good food and some good drinks in my cozy Brooklyn apartment, I had some of my best friends over to talk about when home begins to feel like home. Cheers. My first place, I had a big blue, it was like a light blue couch, and it reminded me of my grandparents' couch from when I was little. So I think that nostalgia of it made it feel like home. And then I had these beautiful bookcases. I had like two walls of books. It was beautiful. I loved it so much. (laughs) (laughs) I think I have a similar memory. I got one of those, I call them Black Panther chairs, like those wicker chairs. Mm, Because when I was growing up, my grandmother had one and she never let us sit in it. So I was like, I'm going to get one of my own. (laughs) (laughs) I read though that that's how people make their homes. They think of the stuff from their childhoods that Mm. gave them peace and they do some kind of adult version of it. Mm. So Every place I've lived has felt like home. I'm the only person I need to make home. Aww. I don't need anything else. Do right? <laughs> I don't know. Like I, I, I sometimes um, make things for my home. So I'll sew some curtains, or I'll buy a different cushion cover, or I'll make a cushion cover, or something. But I think making something 
having something made by my own hands in my own place is usually helpful, but generally I don't even need that. I have a hard time calling something the place that I live, something other than what it is, like my apartment, my house. Yeah. If I catch myself calling it home, it feels weird because the, usually the only yeah. time that I really say home is like if I'm going to visit my mom. Right. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't even live in the place where we grew up, but that still to me mm. is home. Home is where your mommy is, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> Who's they? Who said that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who said uh, that? What you calling them? Who said you that? know what I'm talking about. What you call a cousin? You know, from around the corner. You know what I'm talking about. Thank you so much once again for tuning in. Going Through It is an original podcast created in partnership with MailChimp and Pineapple Street Studios. Executive producers for Going Through It are Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Linsky, and Agaranesh Ashagre. Our lead producer is Josh Gwynn. Production by Jess Jupiter with production support by Janelle Anderson. Our editor is the always so jazzy, Leela Day. Also, thanks to the voices of the folks that you heard sound off in this episode. Hey, DJ, let's hear those names. Trent, Drea, Bim, Nicole. Our original music is by Dawood Anthony, and our engineer is Hannes Brown. Special thanks to Eleanor Kagan for being the originator of this whole party. Stay in touch with me. You can find me on the internet at Broken McPoverty on most of the things. Tell all of your friends about the show. Make sure to rate and subscribe to Going Through It on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever free podcasts are sold. And that's it. We out. See you next week. Bye.